Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host today, Steve Edwards, and with me, I have co-panelist Austin Stegosaurus. How are you doing, Austin? Hey, I'm doing well. Excited for this episode. And so, oh, I forgot to mention I'm here. It's actually beautifully sunny and clear here in Portland on the West Coast. How's it down there, Austin? It's, you know, typical San Diego, perfect weather. Pretty happy. Uh, Pretty sad to be inside. Uh, I feel your pain. Must be rough. And our guest today is Tim Benix. Is that how you say it or how do you say your last yes, name? Yes, you do. Tim Benix. Oh, I got it right. Hey, folks, do you love keeping track of what's going on in the VIEW community? Maybe you're a little overwhelmed with all the new stuff. Well, don't be. Come join us at VIEW Remote Conf. VIEW Remote Conf is going to be a three-day online conference. We're actually going to have a fourth day the day before where we watch our favorite videos from VIEW conferences over the last year. We'll also have talks from our favorite guests from around the VIEW community, as well as our panelists from the Views on VIEW podcast. So if you're out there looking for great VIEW content that'll help you stay current with your web development skills, then come check us out at viewremoteconf.com. That's viewremoteconf.com. Tim, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us why you're famous and who you work for and what we're here to talk about today. Sure, thanks. That's quite the introduction, why you're famous. Let's see. <laughs> so my name is Tim Benix. I was born in Amsterdam, but now I'm based in Paris. And I am the um, director of web development at a company called Voltec. It's originally a French company, but they're actually all over the world. We have like 45 offices. So why am I famous? I don't know. So I've always worked at ad agencies and I've always worked with big clients and I've never actually spoken to our community about any of that. I was just buckling down work, work, work. And then now my job is also part of that job is to show that Faltech is also a front end house that we can actually do great FGS. And we weren't really known for that. We're more like a big platform implementer for global clients. So now they're like, okay, Tim, so now we want you to hire a whole bunch of good front enders and make sure that people want to work at Faltech. So I decided to just switch things around and create a bit more content and do some conference talks. And turns out I really like doing that. And I've been lucky to know some people in our community already that gave me a shot at speaking at a really nice conference, uh, FUGS Amsterdam, which had like 1,100 people watching. And they placed me right after Evan Yu. So I kind of had the, the nice crowd. And luckily, the talk went well. And since then, I've been like bitten by the bug, I think you can say. I love to do it. And um, now we're here, I guess. So the, the, I think the issue that uh, brought you to our attention was some talks that you had been giving on implementing Vue at scale with L'Oreal. And L'Oreal is a you know, worldwide famous brand for, uh, what do you call it, makeup, uh, cosmetics. I think it's cosmetics. Exactly, it's cosmetics, yes. Not that I'm into cosmetics myself, but I have a daughter, so that tells you that. Anyway, that's what we were going to talk about today. And so, you know, there's obviously... Uh, multiple parts of something like that. There's the team and building a team and having remote teams all over the place and and then implementing uh, view in such a large environment and how that works. So why don't you start wherever you wanted to start? I think we talked about the team approach first and then yeah. we can go from there. Well, so let's have a look because all of my career and not based on my preference, I've been working with luxury clients. Like for some reason, like when I was in Amsterdam, it was all like Heineken, you know, beers and EA Sports and games and stuff. And then I came to Paris and it's only Chanel, L'Oreal, all of that kind of stuff. So I do know all about makeup. Not that I use it, but this is kind of this strange thing, like a guy knowing all that. 
But actually, how this all started is L'Oreal is this huge, huge company. They have like, I think, 88,000 people all around the world. And what makes them so successful is that they they keep on buying brands. They don't create brands or not as much. But every time you buy a brand, they already have a whole infrastructure. But they choose to leave it that way. And they choose to have people sell the way they want to sell in their market. Like specifically to, let's say, in San Diego, they might sell differently than in Paris. They have different audiences. They have different products. So for sales, this is a very good model. But then if you want to build websites and you want to make sure every website is on a certain level because you want to have more e-commerce traffic, you're going to have to have some um, yeah, steady quality, let's say. So then they realized, okay, we, we're going to have to centralize how we build websites with all of those brands because they used to have like a whole amalgamation of all different types of websites for every brand might have in Germany a different tech stack than in the US for the same brand. And they all have different creative agencies, different tech agencies, different marketing agencies. So they came up with this plan they call uh, the website factory. Initially, they reached out to me because I was in Paris and they're the heart of that website factory is in Paris as well. So L'Oreal was hiring a lot of people to actually have this digital transformation happen to make that all work. And so they asked me, would you like to be on that team that actually helps brands move to their new website that we're going to be building for them? And they explained that they already had all these websites and they had a bunch of features. They were pretty happy with it, but it was basically a black hole of money and websites were 10 years old or the hosting was expensive. It was just not organized. So I would have been a part of a team telling people that are happy with their website that they have to pay for a new one and then get less features, but it's more fast or it's more stable. There's more uptime. So I told them, guys, you're probably not going to succeed doing that with all these different countries and all these different people. So I said, I didn't really say no, but that was an obvious no on their end, right? If you don't believe in this program. And then Valtech came around and they said, yeah, we have this huge program that maybe you want to work as a front-end developer on one of those projects. And I'm like, oh, is that this L'Oreal thing? Yes, yes, yes. And so I thought, you know what? If I may be on the, produ the pr production side of a platform like that, that could potentially be very interesting because I can then influence how that is built. And potentially my code could touch millions of people, right? Because for 2025, they have a billion new e-commerce users coming onto the internet buying products for L'Oreal. Well, now with COVID, maybe that has changed, but there's still a steady growth in their market. I started as kind of um, a team lead, a front-end team lead in one of the projects, like one of the first ones. And then we realized there's going to be a lot of like tech that we have to figure out to make this thing grow. Because the point is they um, chose to use Sitecore, which is a back-end CMS written in C-sharp. And they needed to figure out, okay, how can we do a front-end for reusable components um, between all those websites that still have our own look and feel. And I know that everybody thinks that's like this unique thing that everybody wants to do because you want to be building some sort of a platform with reusable components and then just style them up a bit and be happy. And I don't think that's really possible to do. But we tried anyways, as you do. And 
what we managed to pull off is to actually have a system where you could build a feature, let's say a video player or something like that. And that would then be able to be copy pasted or via package manager and put on any sort of brand and then style it up on the project itself. So you can make it look good and you can overrule certain parts. And that actually worked. And then we managed to scale that whole platform up to, I think right now we are at 400 websites maybe all using the same technology stack, the same CDN, and the same rules for performance, same rules for accessibility, same rules for SEO. So where my talk came from in FUGIS Amsterdam was much more about how to manage teams in a situation like mine. And we learned over time, because I've done that job for three years now, that if the developers in the teams are actually happy and under, feel understood, they just do better work. And um, for the people who are listening that know L'Oreal, they know that they are notorious for burning the people that work for them, but also their agencies. So we were honestly pretty scared to work with these guys because if it's not good enough, they will just destroy you in front of everybody. It's kind of the way they operate because they can. It's a privilege to work for brands like this. So that's how that works. And internally, they're working hard to get that better. And I think it's better now. But in that environment, I had people that were in a team. Um, one was would be in New York. We had them in Brazil. We had them in Ukraine, Amsterdam, Paris, Denmark, China. People were all from all over the place. So you had so many different cultures. And we had to figure out a way, kind of like, how can we make them work well together, that they understand each other, and that what they're doing is actually successful against the the KPIs or the goals of this program because they were very, very strict. Like the performance needed to be spot on Um, because if these websites grow over time, there's a bit of leeway and they can be slightly less fast, but then at least they are starting with a good base. So in Paris, we were building all the master websites that would then be localized by other places. So in that We had so many difficult times figuring out how to work with those local creative agencies, for example, or how they would have the storytelling. And you have these central points for a brand that would say, this is a story we're telling with this brand. But then the market that sold the most said, I don't care about that story. I just want this feature. And so if you throw developers into that mix, it's really hard because they don't always understand If I code this, is that good? Why did the product owner want this really weird feature? I don't want that. I'm a developer. I want to do good stuff. I just don't want to deliver too fast sometimes. I want to have quality. And so we really had to teach people to um, have overview, right? If you have overview of your project, of what the people around you do, what you do yourself and how that influences others, it's much easier to reason about like not liking some implementation that they ask for. But the moment you understand why, it's much easier to also fight it, right? So in that um, talk I did in FUGS Amsterdam, I actually made like a whole list of things that you can do as a developer to feel more happy in a team like that. But also if you are a leader, what do you do to make people feel good and successful, obviously? And then things you can do as a team so yeah, you were you were talking about you know some of the KPIs, and so I'd be interested to hear like with how these business KPIs kind of from this enterprise scale affect your day to day as a developer. And can we define KPI real quick, Austin, for someone who might not know? What yeah, that- yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so along with what the KPIs were, what, what is a KPI? Exactly. So a KPI is a key performance indicator, which is just a fancy word for this is a goal I have, you have to reach it. And the funny thing is we have these development KPIs, like it has to be this fast or it has to support this amount of load under a certain certain circumstances. But you also had like, we want that amount of unit testing coverage or we want, how, do we, how did they define this? It's like we want 40% of reuse of every component that you build because they have goals for their program saying that everything has to be reused. But of course, if you don't really enforce that, people will just build their own thing every time because you know, you're a front-end dev. You kind of want to build the thing that you think fits that system. So it did definitely influence us a lot into how are those KPIs complicated for us, but also how real life are those KPIs. And this is maybe an interesting one to discuss because we had, for example, something like page speed, like, you know, like a Google audit when you run that for performance, it shows you a bunch of things about your page speed. And what they said, including the the backend call and the frontend call, We want the page to be loaded within three seconds. But then they didn't really tell us which metric to look at. And so in the contract, it said window load. So that's like the last thing that fires. But then the moment you put a whole bunch of third parties like Google Analytics tagging or Bazaar voice ratings and reviews, like all of those third parties that developers don't have control over, you will never, ever reach that KPI. Because these things load, well, even if you code them that they lazy load, they still load quite late. And that window on load event goes, is pushed back and back and back. And they had really crude tools to, to, to test it. They just looked at numbers, not at perceived speed, right? So that was really um, a challenge for every team to understand what does this KPI mean? How do I code against this? So I make as much as I can lazy. Like a lazy loaded image is much faster because you only load the image when you need it. But lazy loading the image pushes that number of when the page is loaded back in the tool. Because when you scroll down, something loads, so the thing is not ready. And so this really affected our daily life as developers. And we had to reiterate constantly over what those KPIs meant. For example, for this this page speed one, we decided at one point, okay, we will just test it on the code we write, not on the third-party additions, for example. It was all things like that. And then once you start to understand, I constantly had meetings with everybody to constantly like calm them down a little bit and just like, just look at the contract. It's just facts. Um, If the measurement tool is not entirely correct, you can still argue your way out of it. And it was this complex because if we went live and that KPI was not met, we would have to pay a fine every day until it was met. So it was pretty serious stuff. So these KPIs are not like, you know, business, I mean, indirectly business, but not, not like business APIs like, or KPIs like, you know, number of users or number of clicks, but it's more like things to do that developers have control over, like accessibility, security, SEO, performance. Exactly. Because what they did is they had something, had like, they had like a central organ within L'Oreal that was actually dealing with this kind of stuff. So they were also advisors and they were helping shaping the goals for brands because if they also put the metrics of how many clicks does this thing get or how did we user test this stuff, 
the moment they centralized this, there would be too many opinions. And it's just impossible in a company that big that is so decentralized to actually get people to agree. So they, we basically centralized the KPIs that were the easiest common denominator that just you can actually do. Because if we said yes to certain of those, those business KPIs of increasing the traffic or having more sales because blah, 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 we would just fail. And if you are a company that produces, you need to be safe. And these are the ones that we kind of agreed on. So having accessibility AA or certain SEO score because of an, an, a bot that indexes and you don't have 500 errors, that's much more achievable than the other ones. So that's why there's not that much business KPI in our hands. But those were clearly in the hands of the L'Oreal group that was dealing with it. These guys had a way harder job than us. Because nobody yeah, liked that program. Because nobody wanted to pay a, a whole lot of money to get a website with less features that's more stable. They didn't care. They're just they're people who do marketing. They need their banner to be out there. So that's a very challenging subject for them. In all this, we've also been talking about, you know, you needed these reusable components, you needed performance, you needed to meet these KPIs. But I'm sitting here thinking that all of this could be accomplished. I mean, when we're talking reusable components, you're probably looking at some of the more modern JavaScript frameworks like Angular, React, Vue, Svelte, even native web components. So that begs the question, did these KPIs influence the decision ultimately with going with Vue or, or how, did, how did Vue get into the mix? Yeah, I think especially SEO was the biggest uh, influencer here. So what we need to realize, we used the, the Sitecore system. And when we started this whole program, Sitecore had one mode of operations, which is we are a big monolithic CMS, a little bit like WordPress or Drupal, but then like enterprise level. And you have a really nice interface to edit your your. Your, your content, you hit publish and it spits out just HTML. And they have some template renderer, of course, on the front end and you have some few models and some fancy stuff to build these websites. But in the end, what comes out is HTML. And of course, that on its own is pretty good for SEO. But we also needed more modern tool sets so we could actually make sure that we don't fall into the trap of, let's say, we could have done this with jQuery, no problem. The thing is, you can do something 10 different ways, maybe 20 different ways with jQuery. You can just get a plugin or you can, you can write your own plugin or you can do that in like 100 ways. So if you have people touching the DOM, you, will, you are bound to have this kind of issues with like events, handling, all of that stuff. And the moment you want to go more complex, let's say a faceted search with Ajax calls where the, your search grid constantly updates and all of this fancy stuff, you're going to want to have a bit more modern tool set like an Angular or like a Vue.js. And what we realized is that with Vue.js, you can kind of go into the route of native web component territory where you basically can build a website without any JavaScript that just works, great for SEO, great for performance, and you kind of sprinkle the JavaScript on top as you would do sometimes when it was still the vanilla JavaScript era where I came from. Like I'm a dinosaur in this era now. And I come from the, the time where we built stuff, just HTML, and you put JavaScript on top of it. And now that we found Vue.js, it was actually the only one that could work as little agnostic components without being in like this whole app context 
that React has, for example. Nowadays, of course, the Vue CLI also gives you that because everybody wants to build single-page apps. But you can actually take a Vue component and register it globally to your Vue instance and render it anywhere on a page. And Vue.js will just recognize it on page load and does do something with it. And this was basically the best approach because we have also looked at having native web components because that kind of fits this whole story. But it was just, we couldn't do that much more with it that we wanted. It didn't have really nice ways to communicate with with other components on your page or with child components. And we had to bootstrap a lot of extra stuff on top by basically building our own framework on top of native components to do what Vue.js did out of the box and really, really well. And so, so this actually worked super well. And what we managed to do was basically build those components with a very fancy JavaScript stack that all developers enjoyed, that was really easy to learn. That's another thing in Vue.js. It's super easy to learn, especially Vue 2. is just the learning curve is shallow. And if you have a team in Bangladesh that never did a lot of front-end, and then you have a team in New York of rock stars, if you give them something that they don't like or it's too complex or the learning curve is not just right, you get developers that are not happy. And we found this happy medium with Vue.js where developers were actually happy. Plus, we made those KPIs because Vue.js has slots, for example. And if you write some mega menu, like a super fancy navigation, you can actually still have the, the A tags and the links in the DOM and use them as a slot. And the rest, you just tie it together with some directives or you make some sort of Vue.js component. And the moment you then turn off your JavaScript, actually, it still works. You can still click the links and bots can still follow. And I know if you don't do this, if you have a single page app, you can do server-side rendering, you will get there. But there are so many more steps to convince also like the CTO or the CIO of L'Oreal with all of that new technology. Like if you have that scale, people just don't always trust things that are pretty new. So when we were able to demonstrate that this approach actually really um, benefited things like progressive enhancement, where if you don't have JavaScript or a slow connection, it actually kind of works if if your components are agnostic and stateless. And then when you have something super fancy, you can still go implement Vue.x and do whatever kind of things you need to do. So yeah, that that is actually why Vue.js worked so well for us. What we also liked is that Vue.js is very much template-driven, right? You have that template tag in your Vue file. And people are kind of used to that. So when we have backend developers come in and help out with the front-end people, they actually kind of understand that that templating thing as well, because most of those enterprise CMSs are also built up this way. If you do it that way, suddenly things like events of clicks or hovers or all of that kind of things or taps, or it becomes pretty easy because you can just hit um, at click dot once and something happens in that little template. So it's very much, it's focused on developers that used to do jQuery also, but then now they don't have to touch that DOM. And I think prior to using Vue.js, what we used to do is having these big projects and we would run fast, we build a lot. And then over time, there would be a buildup of a lot of bugs. And I think usually in the end, we had like a thousand bugs to fix. And they were all like IE11 or that event handler wasn't correct or like all of those silly things that we always used to deal with. 
um, constantly happened. And then with Fuji-S, I could almost not believe how little bugs we had, but still building the same kind of websites that we did before. And so people's minds just clicked really easily into that whole system. And of course, um, still things still go wrong all the time. So over time, we just learned we need to build little tools for people so they don't have to worry as much. Because things that are really challenging sometimes in uh, progressive enhancement and mobile first and growing things to bigger screens is media queries, of course. Okay, so we've been throwing out a lot of terms here over the past few yep. minutes. I want to sort of <laughs> slow down and go back and, and let's start from the beginning because my head's spinning and trying to imagine some of this stuff. Sure. <laughs> That's not hard to make that happen. So let's start from the back end. You had said that what they were initially using was Sitecore. So that was C Sharp. It's a, it's a .NET type yes, uh, CMS. Is. Okay. Is that still your primary data source? So what is your back end? What's your, what's your data? It's still store? that Sitecore system. Okay, so it's sort of a decoupled type of system then where you're just... Actually, it's not at all. It's completely old school. So it's literally, you hit save, it outputs uh, HTML. That's it. It's like we used to have all the time. So there's nothing decoupled here. Not in this system anyways. Okay, so yeah. So it's similar to what I've worked on in the Drupal world for years where you had like the monolith. So so you're fitting in web components in view inside of Sitecore then? Is that... Correct. Yeah, so basically how that works, and this is kind of funny nowadays, people don't get how that works sometimes, even though it's the simplest form of web development. So what we actually do, like what you said with Drupal, a page comes out, right? And in the, in the footer or in the header, whatever, you add a script tag with your bundle. And then, so what we did to make that work with Fuji-S is in the, the global instance of Fuji-S, you would register with like view.use or view.component all components that we have. So let's say you build um, a carousel and you build a a lazy loading image and you build a video. So in your index.js or your main.js, you actually load all of those, you import them, and then you tell Fuji.js, these are your components. And now spawn yourself onto the DOM on this container diff, like diff.id main, something like that. So basically, on every page you have a bundle that contains all components that exist in your application. So Fuji.js will be put onto the DOM. It mounts itself, and then it looks at the, all the elements inside. And when it finds a few components, it says, hey, I know, because in your global index or in your constructor, you actually told me this component exists. So when it finds that video player tag that we create, it would actually morph that, with Fuji.js into some sort of HTML with JavaScript attached. So we're kind of taking the old school approach here, but it works super well in this instance. Did that make sense? Yeah, I'm still trying. I, I, I see where you're going. And I'm, the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is your content that's coming from Sitecore. So what it sounds like is you're generating your Sitecore, even your markup through what? Some sort of Sitecore template, template yes. engine? Yeah, it's called Razor. Razor, okay. So that HTML is being rendered on the server and sent yes. um, to the browser. And then so what you're doing with Vue.js is adding additional functionality on top of that content. Are you modifying that content? Exactly, what, what potentially. Is doing? What is Vue so, doing compared to that Sitecore data? Yeah, so what Sitecore does is has this racer templating engine, right? So they render HTML. So let's say my component is a, a product detail page. Right, or a product detail with like uh, maybe three images and 
my price or something. So Razer would actually say, okay, so I have Sidecore components because Sidecore is very component-driven. Component number one is those images of my product and component number two is maybe the price. It would render a diff with ID price, for example, but it can then also render a Vue.js component tag that we potentially have called, let's say, price check stock or something like that. So it, we would literally render in our HTML output the Vue.js component tags that you define as your component. And then when document ready hits, or at least when Vue.js executes, it finds that component and just renders it as an inline template, basically. So we, we actually change the DOM based on whatever Vue finds. There are some challenges here, because if we add a component... And then once it's rendered, it adds a whole bunch of CSS that changes the layout. It looks kind of ugly because you render the HTML and then Fuji.js executes and does a whole bunch to that HTML. So what we really are trying to do is if there's anything layout focused that is like a placeholder for for a a square box, for example, that happens outside of Fuji.js. So outside of Fuji.js, you would have a diff that has a placeholder for this price. And then Vue.js itself might render the price, but then the, um, and add a bit of styling to the numbers, but not to the layout. So that way, there it's it's basically like native web components. Okay, so, so yeah, you mentioned that web components is part of the equation here. So I guess can you define for those that might not know what a web component it is, how it helps you out, and how you're oh, sure. utilizing that in the stack. Well, the interesting thing is we don't actually utilize it; we kind of mimic it with Vue.js. So what a native web component is, is basically you can define an HTML tag that is custom. And then you can attach CSS that is scoped to that tag, and you can add JavaScript that's scoped to that tag. So if you write an HTML tag that is called price, that renders a price based on some properties that you add in HTML or some attributes, that would work natively in your browser. So we did exactly the same, but then with Vue.js components. And then when the page is ready, it loads and it actually just finds all those custom components that we built with Vue.js and executes them. That's how that fits into the equation. So it's basically sort of like what do you call an Angular JS? I can remember you called them directives, where you basically created custom tags and then assigned the behavior and the content to that tag as part of your directive. Exactly that, and that's why it's so funny because Angular, the first version of Angular, was very close to Vue.js. And I think that's where Fuji.js, the, the guys actually got their ideas from, and then over time it evolved into what they do now. But it doesn't mean that we cannot still do that first version. Uh, and that works so well for, in this instance, because we didn't have to um, go headless with, with Sitecore and output JSON and then have node servers and scale that to infinity and all that extra stuff. We actually didn't really know back then how to do that yet. And for L'Oreal to have a new contract with a vendor that, let's say, is Heroku, like to just have that contract, it takes them a year. Like security issues, pricing, all of those things are so complex. So they already had Sitecore. It was already running. It was all in the cloud in Azure, and it just worked. So we had to have, we had those blocks in place, and we just had to work with it. And this is what came out. Looking sort of at this from a file structure standpoint, this is the geeky stuff that I always try to figure out. How is it that you're implementing Vue inside of Sitecore? So for instance, you know, if I'm normally to spin up a Vue CLI 3 app using the CLI, 
you know, gives me a whole structure where I've got Webpack and I import my node modules and, you know, I have my main JS and then my components directory, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So are you using that full structure inside of Sitecore somehow, or are you just like, say, including Vue.js from CDN? How is that? Uh, so we that? used to include it from CDN, but not really from CDN. We had a gulp task running. This oh. was back in the day yeah. to actually find all few files and make one bundle and just put it in the DOM. But then we didn't have all the lovely Webpack stuff. We didn't have the chunk output. We had, they had none of it, right? So what we did when Vue CLI 3 came out, I actually asked Guillaume, who worked on that also. It's like, okay, guys, who, how can we actually put that in place and do that well? So we figured out we can use all the tooling of Vue CLI 3, everything it has to offer. The only difference is that we don't use is that main.js. Because what that main.js does in Vue CLI is it actually makes a diff that's called app, right? And everything is rendered inside that diff called app. And that's how you have your whole tree structure of Vue.js components. This is the one thing we couldn't do because our app was rendered by Sitecore. It's just HTML. So what we would do rather than only load the component when you need it in another component, like what you do with Vue CLI, um, we would just load almost all components we have in that main JS, give them all to Vue, and then mount Vue and just say, look at a, a wrapper diff that Sitecore generates somewhere for us. So everything inside that wrapper diff is user-generated content. And if there are a few components scattered throughout that HTML, Vue.js will understand, hey, this is one I know, let me execute it. So we do use that whole tool set. But another one is we had this reusable code, right? But reusable is not just a Vue.js file. It was also a, a, a SAS file for CSS. And, but it could also be some C-sharp code, and it could also be some templating code from Sitecore, some HTML. So what we had to come up with is this: there's this system within Sitecore that has the concept of we have foundation-level code, we have feature-level code, and we have project-level code. What that means is it, like all the shared stuff inside Sitecore, let's say being able to deal with product data or with SEO stuff, that would all live in the in the foundation. So all our utility JavaScript for um, Google Analytics, for example, or unit testing stuff was all in there. And then each feature, let's say a YouTube player could be a feature or a product card could be a feature. We would have a folder with a Vue.js file, a CSS file, a C-sharp file, and maybe some content. And so what we had to build was a system with Webpack that would find all those files in the right way and then create a bundle from that, basically. So it's not really the normal structure in, in pages that you see when you do a few CLI standard projects. So we've had to extend it quite a bit. And nowadays, it's much cleaner. The, the CLI has been updated a whole bunch, so we have to do less boilerplating. But that actually works really well. And now we have all the latest goodies, and we have unit tests that also live in the same feature folders, for example. So I can literally now take out one of those components and give it to anyone, to you guys, and you can probably run that in your Vue CLI application because it's all agnostic. And then you also had that project folder that I mentioned, and that's where you personalize it for a project. Let's say if the color scheme is red or you have to do some layout changes, you could overrule your files and put it in the project level and there style it your way. Because the extra layer of complexity here is that we have, let's say, L'Oreal Paris website has 60 markets. 
A bunch of those will have their own components. They will have used, they will be using our rules that we set, our ESLint, all of those things, like how do you code something in Vue.js? And we, they would give those rules to an agency, some agency somewhere in Germany, that would then build Vue.js components and hook them into our stack. But that had to be extendable and not break, and you had to be able to overrule things. So yeah, that was pretty technical, and we had a lot of considerations to make. And now we are four years in, and it's quite smooth. But it took four years, and it still goes wrong quite often. So I understand what you're saying now, because basically you have, you know, here's your site course stuff. So you basically got what a file structure or something that you're going to send. Think of as an extension of a project that you can send to them. They make their changes in it. And then you just incorporate that into, you know, as a new site. Yeah. So basically how we did it is we have what I would work on in Paris would be the master website. But then when you go to, let's say, this German market we just uh, talked about, this is the, the German version which is then a client project. So it's no longer the master, so it extends this master. So in the sidecore terms, our CI pipeline, our build, would actually build the master. Then it would build this German version and then merge them together. So with C-sharp and DLL files, all the Windows stuff, that actually works pretty well. But with front-end, that was quite the challenge. So what we had to build was a system like if I had a carousel.view on my master, and we would find the carousel.view in the client, so in the newer extended version, we would use that one rather than the one in the master. So they can make their own carousel or add their own stuff. So these market websites where they have to overrule certain things, they have like a lightweight version of our build scripts. And they can build whatever they want. And then when we go live, it will take the master and it will look at whatever these guys did and then combine it into a bundle with Webpack. And sometimes it would, it would make different chunks based on whatever they gave to Webpack to do. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current with React Native? Maybe you heard the Chain React conference was canceled and you're a little bit sad about that. Well, I borrowed their dates and I'm doing an online conference. So if you want to come and learn from the best of the best from React Native, then come do it. We have people like Christopher Shadow from Facebook. He's going to come and he's going to talk to us and answer questions about the origins of React Native. We're also going to have Gant Laborde from Infinite Red and several of the panelists and past panelists from React Native Radio. So come check it out at reactnativeremoteconf.com. That's reactnativeremoteconf.com. So how does that work with your child websites from a backend standpoint? I'm not really familiar with, with Sitecore. Is it, do you have like one code base that everybody shared or does every one of these child websites sort of have their own Sitecore structure? Yeah, so it's actually that. So it, for, for me as a front-end dev, it looked quite not so elegant. So what we actually had is we have a Git repository for this master, and then there's a Git repository for this child website. And basically, this master is a full website. It just works. So this child only extends it with stuff they want or maybe change something or add something. That would be their own uh, Git repository. They would have both their own built pipelines in our CI stack. So it would build all the Sitecore DLL files, just like compiling the C-sharp code, right? And so each component became its own little executable. And then afterwards, they have those two folders and they literally do merge on those folders. So if you had overruled something in your client project, that would overrule the one in the master and it would still work. 
because of naming conventions and a whole bunch of stuff. There's all these things. Actually, it's so interesting to see how mature the C-sharp world or the .NET world is. They have the NuGet package manager, where we have the NPM package manager. And it's so mature and it's so good with merging code and all of that stuff. That actually works pretty well. Um, but to me, it was kind of strange that they would just merge these folders and it, and it actually worked. But yeah, that's how that worked. And initially, for the front end, we had something similar. If you had, let's say, a Turkish website that had different fonts, right, or different styling for certain fonts, we would just build for the client website that is Turkish an extra CSS file and then load the master CSS and load the extra CSS. Like with CSS, that wasn't so bad. But when we started to do that with Fuji.js, you would run into some problems because that bundle would contain Fuji.js on both sides. Because how would the people that work on this Turkish website develop without having a Fuji.js in their bundle? They kind of need that to see if their code works. So we ended up having two script bundles for both of those websites. And they were, of course, clashing because too few instances on the same DOM node didn't work. So in the beginning, with all these workarounds, with like having, oh, I don't even want to go into it of how we had to deal with that, with like few mounting on this <laughs> DOM node, and then on, like that was not working. Bringing back didn't nightmares, huh? <laughs> oh, yes. This is painful. You cannot see it, but I'm bold. <laughs> yeah, I understand that you get it from pulling your hair out, trying to solve stuff like yeah. this. So basically how we did it in the end, when we got this few CLI uh, three stack, we had the, the, the magic of imports and exports with Webpack, right? So what we did now is the moment you were releasing your client website, it would actually, we would build the bundle for Fuji.js only from the client from this Turkish website or this German website. And then we would just say, okay, we need these functions from the master and we need these from ours. So in my main JS of my client site, I'm just going to import everything from the master that I want because those two websites are two folders in the same root folder. So you can literally just say with an alias in Webpack, say, okay, so this alias goes two folders back into the master, into the JavaScript. So in the client side, so in, so that that translated site that had some stuff for themselves, they would load everything they need from the master, everything from themselves, and make one bundle with everything. And then it started to really be smooth because then everyone, anyone could just build something. And then suddenly you would see websites that are super light because they didn't use anything from that master because they didn't really care about it. They just wanted two pages. That is actually possible at that moment. Interesting. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, ideally, you just only want to send to the browser what you actually need as compared to sending a whole yes. bunch of crud that you don't the, need. Exactly. And this is the one thing I don't like as much as at this system, because you still need to load all your components into that bundle and give it to the browser to parse. There's not really lazy loading of components in a smart way, like React could do that sometimes. Like the React lazy and lazy hydration and stuff like that works really well. But for that, you'd need a single-page app to just have more control. Like if we, we also have single-page apps with Fuji.js, not in this L'Oreal program, but there we can use Perch CSS, right? We can use Nuxt and just be super smart with all your roots and all the things you preload and all of that amazing stuff starts to, draw, to come in. But then you don't have Sitecore because Sitecore has all these other features that business people really need, like personalization, extreme scale, you know, all of that kind of stuff. 
So one of the things that you've mentioned you know, that we really haven't touched on specifically is that you're working in many different language locales. So you're all over the world, so you've got all kinds of different languages. So my question is, how many different language locale combinations are you dealing with for L'Oreal? And how is that handled and viewed? Do you handle that well? Could it do it better? So on. So I think the one with most markets is probably L'Oreal Paris that has, well, they have 60 markets where they have a website, but I think there are not 60 locales there. I think it's like 48 or something. I, I'd have to check for the specific numbers, but you know what? It's a lot. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah 48, 60, it's all. It's, it's kind of like it's the same ballgame. Yeah. <laughs> like even from one to two is kind of fine, but from two to 10 or from 10 to 60, it's still similar. So what we have managed to solve is because we we let Sitecore render the HTML, right? So we let them deal with UTF-8 issues or with like different character sets or with different crazy URLs and stuff because we're not using, for example, the view router. So we don't have to worry about browsers not understanding certain types of URLs. And because we render everything with HTML and we put Fuji.js around it, we don't actually give some, let's say, Russian text with crazy characters to Fuji.js as a prop. We tend to render it in HTML and use it as a slot into a Fuji.js component, which means generally... The content that can make it go wrong is already rendered correctly in the DOM and Fuji.js just uses it. So it doesn't have to parse much. And then other places where we have API-driven stuff, because we kind of have sometimes single-page apps within the bigger system, like uh, we have all of those things where you can try on lipstick live on your webcam or a quiz to figure out how much wrinkles you have and which product you need to buy. Like those are all little single page apps. And um, what we did for those is like, there's no state management or no smartness in Fuji.js. So all data at all times comes from Sitecore from a REST API that we would build. So anything that's localized in there, all is dealt with in the REST API. So if there's crazy characters or quotes that would break sometimes a Fuji.js component, that's all kind of fixed by using the REST API and then Sitecore deals with all the complexity because that's why you buy a system like Sitecore. That's what they do. Okay, so I'm confused. Now, my understanding was that Sitecore is rendering the HTML and sending it. So where is your REST API coming into play? Okay, so certain components, you kind of want to have like Ajax calls and, and fun animations and stuff, right? So we have some places, certain things where you have, let's say, a quiz. Let's say it's a quiz to actually say, okay, my skin is rashy and it's dry. So I answer a couple of questions and based on what I answer, you see a funny animation and then it says, buy this. So what we wanted to do for that is to actually have a really cool animation and really beautiful design. And we wanted to do Ajax calls to get data back and forth. So certain components could actually have, just for that component, its own REST API. So in Sitecore, rather than actually outputting HTML with every string in a JSON object or something, or already rendered HTML, we would actually say, you know what, render me just an element that's called whatever my component is as a tag for Fuji.js, and then add a prop with the URL where I can query some JSON data. Because if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have the flexibility we needed. So sometimes you need to do some stuff with Ajax. And so we would always build, um, for all of those things, we would just say, okay, build like a tiny REST service for just that component. 
Does it make sense that way? Yeah, no, that makes okay, perfect cool. sense. So, okay, so going from there, obviously, I in one of the videos that I saw from one of your presentations, you were showing, for instance, your mobile apps and other apps. So since you have a REST API, how are you using that for your mobile apps in sort of a decoupled format? Or how do you hand? How are you providing data for some of your other non, you know, website applications? Well, first of all, we are really going the PWA route with these kind of projects. And a PWA is a progressive web app. Yes, sorry, my my apologies. So it's basically a website that feels like an application, kind of. So PWA is this thing that Google coins. It's progressive web apps, and it's a whole bunch of technologies together bundled becoming a PWA, which is basically just a progressive enhanced website that works really fast and feels like an app. So where we can, we will always do that. So we don't go the app store route. And the simplest reason is L'Oreal would have so much to deal with to get approvals from app stores and to just all over the world in all these markets, it needs to work and you have different releases and different. So then they would be creating a second platform again and they didn't want that so of course there are some apps so uh, sidecore is really good you can just have another um, output that is just to json and they can use that so it's just a different rendering basically so you you don't have apps like in the google play store or the apple there are there are clearly some but not the we don't tend to touch those so if they need some sort of data output from project that we build, we will just provide them with a REST API based on their specs. Okay, so, so, you, so how are your main apps distributed then? They're just URLs, right? They're oh. progressive web apps. It's just a website. Go to L'Oreal Paris now and you will have, if you go there on your mobile, it's a progressive web app with HTML and QGS and it's, it can sometimes even work offline, stuff like that. So right. that is... That distribution is suddenly very easy because URLs work everywhere, right? Okay, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I haven't worked with PWAs, so I'm a little hazy on it. Uh, yeah, that so makes sense. It comes down to the fact that the PWA is just a very well-built website that feels like an app. Right. right. So when you click a link, it doesn't always reload a page, but it might do an Ajax call and have some sort of fancy slide animation and goes to the next page. You can do that with all web technology, but it feels like an application. And this is what clients tend to like to see. Like we even do like lazy loading images, but then before the image loads in, there's a little gray box before it. And it's like, it kind of has like a nice loader in it. And this feels like an app to them. So they're super happy with that. And those are parts of what a PWA would have basically. Okay. Yeah. I interviewed a guy named Maximiliano Fertman a while okay. ago on progressive web apps. So we've got a whole episode on that. Oh yeah. You can go so deep on that. And um, oh, yeah. Lately, I've been doing some presentations to clients to, because they all say, we want it. But then I say, you actually already have it. So you don't really know sometimes what it might be. And it sounds like this magical unicorn. But actually, if you follow the right technology best practices, you're very close to it. Okay. So obviously, I think one thing that goes, we haven't mentioned a lot is SEO. You know, for any corporation like this, that's crucial, you know, it's how your yep. information gets found. So basically the SEO is handled in this case and that your server rendering, you know, the vast majority of your content from Sitecore. So view isn't generating it. So that, that addresses most of that. Exactly. Um, we do, however, have a very complex Sitecore, uh, sorry, I mean, sitemap XML files. We also have XML files for image sitemaps. And 
all the lazy images, for example, have a no script tag attached to them. So if the Google crawler actually finds an image that's lazy, it cannot always download that image. Maybe when it comes back later and and does something, executes your JavaScript. So you want Google to find everything the first run they come by. So we have all these things in place to actually have Google able to get anything at once at the first time, because that's the more important run that they do. But the funny thing is, I always tell the web devs, you know what? If you build your component, turn off JavaScript in your browser and look at it. And then they always complain. It's like, yeah, but everybody has JavaScript, right? But the funny thing is, I don't care about having a website without JavaScript. I just want them to think in the way without JavaScript, because then you will always build something that's really good for SEO, but also for accessibility. Because why would you build like this custom fancy select box with Fuji.js if you can just have one that the browser gives you that is completely accessible with the keyboard and you can just style it up a little bit, right? And so exactly. that gives you a really different mindset of how you work. And it's, it's basically content first, accessibility first. And because of that, like our latest website, we released makeup.com a while back. And I gave all the devs, like, this is your ethos, right? Think about, okay, the user needs to see this um, article that we write about makeup very fast and then click buy on the products that are on the bottom. The way to do that is have to lo- load it ridiculously fast so they don't go away, so they don't have to wait. And if you just show an article, what JavaScript do you need other than maybe a mega menu and maybe some share buttons? So even though some of the stuff looks really fancy, it has animations, it's all done with CSS. And we have as little JavaScript as possible. And then the stuff that we do have has an impact. And it's kind of funny to say this on a Fuji.js podcast, right? We have as little JavaScript as possible, but these things perform so well and it's so fast and we have so little bugs because we actually have people um, with the ethos now of, okay, I need to use the browser for what it's built for. Like if people understand how a browser works, then they start to understand why Fuji.js is so good, why it deals with that DOM model so well. And yeah, you need to kind of answer the questions of the base of the web. The moment you understand that, you'll be building much better websites. And Yeah, I mean, with everything that's been added to the CSS spec and, you know, much more slowly to the HTML spec, you know, over the past years, there's so much more that you can do natively in a browser that you don't need to download JavaScript to do. So heck, exactly. use that. Yeah, that's totally it. And it's also, it teaches people to understand their tool, which is the browser, even though the browser is kind of a weird thing with all this async stuff and all these events and weird DOM model, right? But the moment you know more about that base, it's much easier to also argue against or for certain features that you want to build in JavaScript. So, okay, so you sort of mentioned something I want to touch on our last point before we start to wrap up, and that has to do with accessibility. Obviously, you know, with, with a lot of the, you can do a lot, you can do a lot for accessibility just in terms of how you structure your API, your HTML, you know, whether you're using your, your appropriate tags to break things into regions or identifying your navs, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, and with CSS as well. So is there, how much do you have to add from an accessibility standpoint on via view versus how much do you think? You address most of it in your base HTML and CSS. Well, I think we address about 70-80% just by build using the tools the web gives you, like proper HTML, proper CSS, stuff like that. 
And we are lucky and also a bit unlucky sometimes, but we have third-party agencies that are specialized in accessibility, for example. So what they would do is we would have a user story for the feature you're building as a developer. And there would be a whole part in that user story about accessibility. And there would be actually extremely smart developers from those companies that would tell us, build it that way so it will work for 90% of the people. Right, So a lot of the accessibility things that we did was based on what they said, but they would also then, if I created one thing, give us 66 opinionated bugs because they didn't like that one thing we did. So that was a blessing and a curse, but we learned a lot from that. And where we used FUGS for accessibility is, let's say you have a pop-up, a model, and inside that model, you might have an image gallery. We have this quite often. Right, So you go to a page about lipstick, you click on the ingredients, you see a whole bunch of ingredients with all different kinds of images. And what people then would do is click on an image, it would open up and you can scroll through all those images because the web is very visual, right? This is the stuff we had to do. But it needs to be keyword accessible. But the moment you open a pop-up, if you start to hit tap or escape or whatever, and you focus behind your pop-up, you can no longer close your pop-up and your accessibility is gone. It's out the door. So if you use FuGS and you have this lovely templating system where you can actually bind all those keyboard things in your template, you can start to do this kind of super complex accessibility for a model quite easily. Because, for example, in a model, you have a close button. You have for... The, the image carousel, you have a previous and a next button, and you have little bu- bubbles on the, on the bottom to have pagination. All of that needs to be in, and it needs to be keyboard-friendly. So if you keep hitting tap uh, and you don't scroll through the images, you will have to, once you hit the last item, it needs to go back to the first focusable item again. And if you have FUGS, that suddenly is pretty easy. If you don't have FUGS, you're going to have to code a whole bunch of complicated scripts that listen to the window object for uh, all the, the events triggered from the keyboard and stuff. So basically, FUGS helped us out there. And in the beginning, I remember developers with tears in their eyes because we kept on trying to do that keyboard navigation and we kept on not understanding it. And once you get it, I actually managed to instill this whole ethos in our people that Actually, this accessibility thing is pretty fun to do if you have Vue.js and it's so easy to do. You're saying that Vue.js helps you with this. What is it specifically about Vue that helps you with a case like Ah, this? So clearly, it's that you don't have to bind, uh, let's say, um, a focus event or a blur event in script, but you can bind the focus or blur actually in the template tag of Vue.js, right? So if there's a button and or maybe, yeah, maybe let's say it's a button on focus, um, you want to do something, and then on blur, you need to actually find the last focusable item. If you have like like those nice event bindings of UGS um, in the template for those buttons, like the add focus or the add blur, and then attach a little function to that, that's so much easier because you have this visual representation of the, the DOM and your buttons in that same file, and that helped us out a lot. And then what is also cool is that if you close that model pop-up again, it destroys all these bindings that FUGS added by default because you have a destroy and they have a mounted and stuff like that. And that whole life cycle of how the events work within the templates and then attach them to functions or methods in FUGS 
is what made this thing pretty easy because you could just do accessibility one way. This was the way. And if you needed to hack it a little bit by listening to window events, you could also do that. But generally, you didn't have to. And this is why that works so well for us. To, to clarify on that, accessible, like how Vue makes accessibility easier, I think that it's important to keep in mind that this is in a context of using Vue to progressively enhance a server-rendered website or web application and not like not a single-page app necessarily so which is cool because i think like it's funny how you know i I build a lot of single page apps and i come from background where i used to have like do things the old school way and i'm seeing kind of a shift back towards this old school way especially with like native es modules in the browser will be very similar to just having you know when you used to go and copy jquery and put it exactly. in the source folder somewhere. It's going to be like exactly the same thing. But um, now we have the right tool set and that's so cool about Vue.js. It can actually morph itself to this really well. Yeah, I know yeah. The, with that Vite uh, tool that Evan Yu's been building, I was listening to a podcast with him the other day and Vite depends on native ES6 modules in the browser. Uh, I cannot uh, wait to use it. I want to use Vite Press also just to see what it's been doing. Yeah, sure. yeah. I've been. I was thinking this whole time when you were talking about the whole uh, infrastructure around how you ship. You know, you basically the the pain point you have with Vue with your current like Vue deployment is you basically have to tell Vue about every single component that the app or the website may or may not be using on that page. But in the future, when your support can target just ES modules, then really each component can have its own module and you can tell Sitecore to say, hey, I'm using these three components on this page. So just include those in the those module scripts in the header yeah, or footer or whatever. Exactly. I cannot wait for this to happen because when HHP2 with its multiplexing and header compression also exactly. becomes the main stage, we can actually load like 120 files like that if we wanted to, maybe exactly. not more. But I think that's where it becomes super interesting again, because years ago we had this idea, right? So, oh yeah, I'm I'm finding this component. Let me just load it CSS and JavaScript on the fly. We had these ideas already, but it was so slow with HTTP 1.1. It was just not viable, especially not at scale where people sometimes have slow internet connections or like in India, people have smartphones and they expect them to work like iPhones, but they were $30. So they don't have the memory Right, so we cannot, we just can't do these things. Yeah. But going forward, hopefully, that whole thing that you just outlined is going to become a reality. Yeah, it's really cool though. I like the I like people talking about this using Vue sort of as like a replacement to jQuery. A lot of people think that that's a, a bad comparison, but I think that there's a lot of good to be to be made in that discussion because, like you said, if you are putting if you're if you're outputting HTML that is your template tags. And then views kind of like reading through that. If your JavaScript doesn't load, in your case, your site core page is still going to be somewhat usable, right? Like, well, the, and in the our case, it's going to actually look, it's going to actually look beautiful because we build it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and all your links are going to be there. All of the content, so it's SEO. It's it's going to be fast. It's going to be accessible, which is cool. It's kind of funny that we saw we had this obstacle called Sidecore and we had to deal with it. So we came up with all this and actually turns out to be pretty successful. 
And I'm going to be starting a new project for a new client very soon where we will still use the same approach because they also have Sitecore. They say, we want this. So we choose not to go headless with Sitecore, but go with this approach because I know I can release a website to this insane scale that this client wants to in a certain time frame because it's so easy to understand this thing, especially across cultures, because not everybody is as advanced as you guys in the US, right? Not everybody builds single page apps every day. Well, also you're doing it for L'Oreal, so it clearly has 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 seen the challenge. You know, it, it's been tested, it's been battle tested. Yes, it's been painfully battle tested. I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where you learn the best lessons is when you got to go exactly. through the like that. And you know what the hardest lessons are, and we have we haven't really discussed that just now, but it's also the different cultures that people have in those teams and how you deal with how people interpret what you say and how you do it. And actually, FUGS also kind of plays its part there because it's so simple. Everybody can learn it. But this might not be uh, something in the scope of this talk that we have right now because we're going quite long in time, I guess. But this is a big part of this whole program is like how we manage to get people to work together with different cultures. By that, you mean, you know, someone from one culture working on a team with, you know, someone from China versus somebody from Europe? Is that what you mean? Exactly, exactly. Because I'm from Amsterdam, right? So I am the most direct person you can find. You will know because I say something that that is exactly what I mean. I feel a certain way, you will know. Transparency is our pride. And in the US, you have that too, quite. You're quite direct. But when you go even to France, which is five hours away from Amsterdam, people are not that direct at all. And they infer much more from context. I, and so I always demand context to know exactly what's happening. These guys are trained their whole lives because of their culture to already pick up on things like that. So where I would go into a meeting with someone from Spain, so from a more Southern culture, I would, well, we would discuss something and then I would like paraphrase everything in the end. Like, and we have like items to do. And then I would also still send them an email. Like, this is what we discussed. These guys were so upset with me because they thought <laughs> I didn't trust them at all because they had, of course, already understood what they had to do because the first time we discussed it, sure, I know what to do. I don't have to send you an email. I'll just send you something back in two weeks and there it is. And so when you mix those cultures and then you, everybody has different contexts because we had people from Brazil and people from Spain, they would look pretty similar in how they act, but they have such a different uh, upbringing that they still didn't get and understand each other. So there's so much frustration in just that part of not understanding each other or assuming something way too fast. We would have had things like we would present a budget to our client who is French, and he says we need to be a little bit more efficient in the budget. That's the only thing he said. So my Danish colleague is like, okay, so we're 99% there and just like steam waltzes over him to the next presentation or next item. This guy was so upset because in his French way, he basically told us, how dare you show us this amount of money? This is impossible. But if you don't get that high context that he comes from, we didn't understand that he was feeling that way because of whatever his history. And so you can lose so many battles not understanding the culture of your client and where they come from. Like if you put Dutch people in the room with French people and the French people are the client and the Dutch are the developers and they don't understand the culture difference, things can go wrong pretty fast. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I've witnessed some of that myself, having worked in international 
situations. So yeah, that, that can be sticky. That's probably, I mean, that whole topic is probably, you could put the whole other podcast <laughs> if your books. Oh, been yes. And I've actually been doing, uh, the, the, the talk I did in Fugius Amsterdam was just on this kind of stuff. Like how do you manage these teams for that huge kind of programs? Right. Actually be happy and understand themselves. And like, why am I frustrated right now? And there's a bunch of rules you can apply. And based on that, you can actually pinpoint it and discuss it. Because if I now go into a meeting and I, I just preface it as like, okay, I am Dutch, I'm going to be super direct with you. But that doesn't mean that you did something wrong because I'm so direct to you. Because I always preface it this way and then people kind of accept it more. Because what you see in my culture and also a bit in yours is that the facts and the heart the matters of the heart are relatively separated. Like I can give you guys feedback and you will just understand, oh yeah, the mic doesn't sound good. Let's just fix it, right? The facts and how you feel about it are relatively separate. But then in France, it's very different. Like what you have done, this little presentation that you made, or maybe a big presentation, you have been like a philosopher about it. You have deep thinking. You take evenings out of your week to think about how am I sculpting this and everything super, like it's like, The presentation is you. And if a Dutch blunt dude comes in and say, hey, you spelled Chanel wrong, that's pretty stupid. Yeah, I've had people cry on me because I did that. <laughs> and yeah, that's like, you have to learn not to be so blunt, but to us, it's just transparency. Yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah, this is, this is a thing you really need to take care of. Well, we'll put the link to that talk from you, Amsterdam, in our show notes so people can watch it. It looks like it's about, what, 30 minutes long? So not Yeah, it's not that long. I also have a, a bit of a longer version where I did it as a webinar. So if you want, I can also send you that one. And it has a whole bunch of like stories of things that happened, like some anecdotes that I just gave you also, but way more to, to really illustrate those situations. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Are you freelancing or moonlining? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. So yeah, we're running a bit long here. So I'm going to head us to picks. So Tim, since you're our guest, we'll have you go first. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks. So actually, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's nice. My number one pick is actually a book and it's the book. The book is called The Culture Map and it's written by Aaron Meyer. Basically what this lady did is she's an American that moved to France and then started to work there, similar to me, but then from Amsterdam. And she had all these issues with culture and then she decided, okay, I'm just going to do a bunch of research on this and map out how people kind of... Uh, deal with things in culture. And so she has eight points of how people do things, like how do you um, give feedback or like these kind of things, like these things we just discussed. But she actually wrote the whole book with a mapping that will really, really help you. So if you work in an international team, please just read this book. Like it, it helped me immensely. And If I have people in my team that are getting more senior and I'm making them a lead, we always just give them that book. And just like, if you just read the first four chapters, not even everything, it, it gives you such a sense of how complex this world is that we are in now. You know, we're all not together in the office even now, especially now. And everybody has different expectations and assumptions. And if you manage to fix that, you get a lot more success. And this book, for me, it's key. And I actually have one more. 
I actually started my own YouTube channel beginning of this year. And initially what I wanted to do with that is actually do interviews such as the one we have right now with people that are in our community, mainly Fuji.js because that's where I know most people. But we don't really talk Fuji.js. We talk about the things behind the scenes, like the failures that they experienced that made them amazing at what they do, or their stories of how they got into the technology sphere, let's say. So I would love for you to check those out and not just to plug me in like, hey, I do videos. No, but those people are amazing. And I'm lucky that they, are, that they let me ask them questions, right? So I would love for you to have a look at that one and see if that is of any interest. Yeah, I listen to a lot of tech podcasts and watch a lot of tech uh, YouTube channels. And it's always fascinating to listen to, from a higher level, some of the stories just about how things get done and experiences that people have gone through. A lot of times you can really learn, you know, from what somebody else has done and, you know, as you're trying to accomplish some goals. So, yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Exactly. So, I'll go next. And I have one pick. And I'm going to go with a movie. You know, being at home, I was, I had turned on the TV over the weekend just to see what was on while I was folding my laundry and came across Casablanca, you know, the classic with Ingrid Bergman and, and, uh, I love that movie. So good. I hadn't watched it in like 30 years. I think last time I watched it when I was in college. And that was, I re- that's a really good movie. I'd always, you know, you, there's so many different clips that you hear from and quotes from that movie all the time. Here's looking at you, kid. What about us? You know, so on and so forth. That was just a really good movie. And Ingrid Bergman is just stunning. I got to say that. She was so amazing and beautiful in that movie. But I mean, the acting, you know, you got Paul Henry and and I forget some of the actors' names. Just a really good movie worth, always worth going back and and watching. That's all I got. Austin, what do you have for picks? Yeah, well, I got to say before I do my picks that today is going to be my last episode on the podcast. It's been a uh, pleasure. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the guests that um, have come on and been very gracious with their time. Uh, I want to thank the other panelists and uh, leave it at that. Yeah, I'm going to be doing another podcast with some friends that we're just going to get together and talk tech stuff. So if if anyone's interested in that, it's going to be at, going to be called The Function Call. It's uh, at thefncall.com. We haven't recorded anything, so don't expect too much. <laughs> but it should be fun. <laughs> no, that, yeah, um, put that link in the show notes. I know, you know, a little backstory for people who might um, not know about Austin's background, but we had an, him on initially as a guest to talk about his library of utensils, which is was just stateless, uh, not stateless, uh, bare, bare bones com- view components that you can just plug into a, to uh, your view application and then style them as you want to. So some really neat stuff, but we decided, hey, we like him, let's have him on. So I've certainly enjoyed having you on just because a lot of times you provide a perspective that I myself or Lindsay have have thought about, you know, when we're interviewing somebody. So yeah, we will certainly miss you. Yeah, not a good perspective, but a perspective nonetheless. Well, yeah, I I left that part off. I was just going to leave it (laughs) there. But if you want to, you know, clarify that, then that's your prerogative, I guess. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, let me let me get through these. Um, let's see. Yeah, I have some picks. So the first one is this song called Think About Things. It has been stuck in my head for the last couple days. Really good. I've been annoying my wife with it, which is great. It's by this Icelandic dude. I can't really say his name because it's got some characters I'm not familiar with, but we'll put a link. Really catchy. And then I'm going to pick... 
these things called moon drops. It's a homeopathic lozenge. That's a French word. Lozenge. I think, right? Isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a sleep aid. Um, I'm personally not super into the whole homeopathic scene, but I tried these because my sister recommended them and I have trouble sleeping, but these things have helped so much. So it's working and that's all I got to say. And then uh, last pick, I was, I don't know why, but out of, out of nowhere, I had this memory of a, a old documentary I saw called what the bleep do we know? You can find it at whatthebleep.com. I think you can find it on YouTube as well. And it just talks bleep about actually like uses the word bleep, or is that replacing me? No, I no, think it's, it's actually bleep. bleep. It's a title, right? Yeah, I've seen it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's what the bleep, and it, it talks about like time and physics and how we perceive things and our reality. And I don't remember everything because I, I watched it a long, long time ago. But it's really, really cool and fascinating. It breaks things, breaks uh, complex subjects down, and explains them very in an approachable way. That it. Uh, I could keep going, but <laughs> we'll be here yeah, all day. We're way long, way long, Wilbur. Yeah. So, yeah, well, one last pick. Uh, as we're recording this, SpaceX is getting ready for the next launch up to the space station. They're launching two Americans. So it's pretty exciting stuff. They're about an hour away from launch, I think. But, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff watching it streaming here on YouTube. So, all right. Well, thank you. You, you. you realize by the time anyone hears this, that's going to have Ah. No, absolutely. It will be way in the past, but I'm still going to talk about it anyway because it's really cool. And who knows, it might get delayed because cool. of weather. They said it was like 50-50 right now because yeah. of weather. Let's hope for a successful, safe, successful launch. Oh, yeah, it'll be pretty awesome. So, all right. Well, thank you, Tim, for coming. We went long because there was so much to talk about. Thanks but so much, guys. It was great. This is a great use case for view, and I think it's a little different than what most people think of when you know, they're usually thinking SPAs or NUCs. So thanks for the information. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. Yeah, really cool. Really cool to get the enterprise view and see how huge, huge sites are using it. Right. And so we will see you next time on Views on View. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.